the insider threat, the physical and virtual, and how public and private organizations failed to provide individuals with proper identity protection services. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's security report with a look at how the insider threat in the physical world can serve as a lesson to those defending the threats in the virtual world. I recently caught up with Scott Sagan. He's senior fellow at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation and co-editor of the just published book titled Insider Threat, published by Cornell University Press. Sagan says those responsible for preventing harm in their organizations often make the same mistakes, whether in the real or virtual worlds. Well, most organizations that have serious outside threats focus on them almost exclusively. And indeed, they often forget that they also have an insider threat. And they sometimes can become a bit deluded into thinking, well, we know that they're insiders with other organizations, but we're loyal. We're, we have high morale. So therefore, they can sometimes really make major mistakes and underestimate the threats from the inside. Such loyalty can have fatal consequences. Sagan cites the 1984 assassination of Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards. Gandhi's killing came in the aftermath of the Indian Army assault the Prime Minister ordered on what the government characterized as militant Sikh separatists in the state of Punjab, which has a Sikh majority. More than 500 people died in the fighting, mostly militants and civilians. She decided personally that it was important not to have a religious or an ethnic component to who was on her security detail because she's a a nationalist leader and she felt everybody within her organization, her secret service, was loyal. I asked Sagan if a lesson from the Gandhi assassination is that organizations should ethnically profile individuals to identify an insider who could pose a threat. Our message is not in any way that you should profile or exclude any particular type of individual. Indeed, you've got insiders in nuclear power plants who have been Muslim extremists, but you also have individuals who have been Christian militiamen. So you can't assume that somebody is an insider uh, potential threat because of ethnicity or religion. What needs to be done is to constantly vet all people in the organization to determine if their loyalty remains justified. Think about it. Regardless of what you think of U.S. government leakers Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, they at one time received a security clearance and were initially judged not to be the types who would pose an insider threat. There is this tendency in many organizations to assume that vetting or security background checks are a strong sign, if one passes that, of someone's character. It's as if they are a permanent, indelible characteristic, that once you've passed this, that you're okay. Background checks are snapshots. They're a sign of what somebody thinks, or at least some evidence about what they are like at that particular time. But people change. And the number of cases that we've uncovered of serious insider threats who actually had passed all the tests, who had done all these things, but nonetheless didn't have it often enough so that some of the problems were not seen. One weakness Sagan sees in mitigating the insider threat is human nature. Fellow employees often don't trust their own gut when they notice something out of the norm. Again, Sagan cites an example from the physical world that could also apply to online physical threats. 
the anthrax attacks that came weeks after the September 2001 terrorist attacks. The anthrax attacks killed five people and infected 17 others. The prime suspect was senior Army biodefense researcher Bruce Ivins. Ivins committed suicide in 2008 when he learned the FBI was about to charge him with the anthrax attacks. One of the lessons across these many organizations that we've studied is how easy it is for leaders on top to say, okay, we're going to have a reporting system. If you see something going on down below, I want you to report it. And then they assume that that actually happens, and it very rarely happens. People don't like to rat on their friends, and they find it much easier to assume away statements that people make that can sometimes really be signals of hostility or signals of something going wrong in somebody's calculations. They'll assume those away and just say, oh, that's just Bruce being Bruce. So when Bruce Ivins made remarkable negative statements about the government, would say crazy things about women that had spurned him in the past and that would make threatening statements, people would basically write this off as Bruce being Bruce. And that's a common trait. You know, we, we want to get along with our fellow workers and we don't like to report on them. And yet, from a broader perspective, we want people to, to say, no, if you see a problem going on inside your organization, you have a responsibility not just to your friends, not to rat them. You have a responsibility to the overall organization to identify serious problems or even problems that aren't serious yet but could be in the future. So that you've got to figure out ways to try to encourage loyal individuals to be able to take seriously if someone on the inside is having a particular problem or are behaving suspiciously. That's Scott Sagan, co-editor of the just-published book, Insider Threat. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Despite a years-long move to shore up the security around payment cards in the United States, certain types of fraud are on the rise. ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk explains. FICO, the financial risk and analytics consultancy, says the number of debit cards that were compromised after using hacked ATMs or point-of-sale devices has risen by 70%. FICO says it also detected a 30% rise in hacked ATMs and POS terminals used by restaurants and merchants. The statistic comes from FICO's Card Alert Service, which is a payment card fraud detection product it sells. The statistics would seem to contradict the investments made in U.S. payment card infrastructure over the last few years. The U.S. is moving to EMV, which uses payment cards with a microchip that has security features designed to counter illegitimate card use. But electronic payments are complicated. Stakes in the overall architecture of a system often offer opportunities for cyber criminals. One weak point is standalone or non-bake ATMs. These are administered by third-party companies that charge per withdrawal. The ATMs may not have yet been upgraded to read the EMV chip. If an ATM can't read the EMV chip, it reads the magnetic stripe on the back of the card. EMV was designed in part to counter skimming, in which fraudsters copy the magnetic stripe and encode it onto a dummy card. ATMs that haven't been upgraded to accommodate EMV may also be targeted by fraudsters to use those clone cards. POS criminals are targeted by cybercriminals with malicious software. The aim is the same as ATMs. 
tampering and intending to capture large numbers of card details that can be replayed in fraudulent transactions. Over the last few years, card breaches in merchants have become routine. Merchants are supposed to follow the payment card industry's data security standard, which is a set of security practices designed to protect card information. But smaller merchants with less IT support tend to be more disadvantaged. Still, the amount of time in which an ATM or POS was compromised until when the breach was detected fell. FICO says the average compromise period for either an ATM or POS was 11 days. That's down from 14 days in 2015. Subsequently, the number of cards that are compromised in that time period fell. In 2014, the average time period was 36 days. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. How much thought are organizations in and out of government giving in deciding what kind of identity protection services they should offer individual customers and citizens after a breach occurs? A report issued last week by the U.S. Government Accountability Office suggests not much. Here's Lorenz Evans, he's GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment, discussing the report in a GAO podcast. In the private sector space, these decisions seem to be made without a consideration of whether or not they actually mitigate the risk. So they may want to show concern for the individual. They may want to minimize litigation risk, or it's become the industry standard, so they offer it. And sometimes we often converge on solutions that aren't optimal. In the government space, sometimes law dictates what agency must do. Outside of that, different agencies have different policies and procedures. It could vary by the type of the breach. There is guidance that's provided by the Office of Management and Budget, but that guidance is not specific, and it doesn't include a consideration of the effectiveness of the service. Probably the most notorious breach of federal government IT was the 2015 hack of the Office of Personnel Management. That breach resulted in the exposure of personal information of over 22 million federal workers and contractors, many with security clearances. Evans says OPM's execution of identity protection services to affected individuals fell short. So OPM didn't have policies and procedures in place to dictate how to offer the services or to decide whether or not to offer the services. And there was no assessment of effectiveness when, when, they, when they did it. And they didn't document how they made the decision. The GAO audit points out that OPM provided overlapping identity protection services for about 3.6 million people affected by the 2015 intrusions, which technically were considered two separate but related breaches believed to have been conducted by the Chinese government. It's difficult to Monday morning quarterback. I know it was, it was an unprecedented situation for OPM. They had to make the decision fast. But one could go back and start to ask about why other alternatives weren't offered. And that's where it gets pretty tricky. And because there was no documentation on the decision making, it's left to speculation. After revelation of the OPM breaches, Congress enacted legislation to offer identity protection services to victims for 10 years, including $5 million in identity theft insurance. But as Evans writes in the GAO report, this level of insurance coverage is likely unnecessary because claims paid rarely exceed a few thousand dollars. And he says requirements such as this could serve to increase federal costs unnecessarily, mislead consumers about the benefit of such insurance coverage, and create unwarranted escalation of coverage amounts in the marketplace. Finally, a number of information service providers are saying their customers needn't be worried about them selling their private information to advertisers. 
Legislation passed by Congress would void a not-yet-enacted Federal Communications Commission regulation to require ISPs to first get permission from customers before selling their private browsing history to advertisers. But ISPs such as AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon say they won't sell private browsing histories. Typical was the comment from Verizon Chief Privacy Officer Karen Zacharia. In the statement, she said, let's set the record straight. Verizon does not sell the personal browsing history of our customers. We don't do it. And that's the bottom line. And though congressional action would allow ISPs to sell private information unless customers opt out, Comcast Chief Privacy Officer Gerald Lewis says opt-in has been and will continue to be the company's default policy. Lewis says existing privacy principles commit Comcast not to share its customers' sensitive information, including data about banking, their children, and their health, unless first obtaining customers' affirmative consent. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chavro. Catch you next time. Music